Good morning, everyone. It's time for us to begin this morning. We'd like to welcome everyone that is that is with us here today, either in person or uh, by the web, TV, and I know a lot, a lot, a lot of people that are uh, that watch us online, and we're we're glad each and every one are are present. As we begin this morning, let's all stand as we sing our first song this morning. Oh God, you are my God, and I will love and praise you. Oh God, you are my God, and I will love and praise you. I will seek you in the morning, and I will learn to walk in your ways, and step by step you'll lead. I will follow you all my 
Good morning. It's good to see all of you here today. We welcome you to worship service here at West Irwin, and those who are joining us online, we we welcome you as well. It's really it's really good to see you. If you picked up a, a handout, there's uh, some announcements there. First, uh, want to extend our condolences to May Helen May and her family in the passing of Bob um, this past week. Uh, they had been shut in for several years, but longtime members here. Uh, graveside service for Jean Bell, the sister-in-law of Mary Lee, and the wife of Russell Bell, were yesterday in Jacksonville. We extend our love and sympathy to Crystal and George Hill and their family in the loss of Crystal's grandfather, Julius Pickett. Uh, let's remember Carol Armstrong, who fell last week and broke her hip. Uh, she's expected to be in rehab for the next six to eight weeks. Uh, Joyce Allen is scheduled for cataract surgery on March 3rd. Uh, Susie Carnathan has tested positive with COVID, but Donnie has recovered. And then Terry Fricks has cataract surgery scheduled for Tuesday, March 23rd. And let's do remember Dot White, who's in rehab at Greenbrier, and then Joyce Allen's brother, Jerry Long, who had a mild heart attack Tuesday, uh, but fortunately no further treatment is needed. Uh, a couple of things that were not in the list, um, Bill White will, is scheduled to have a nuclear stress test tomorrow. Uh, that will determine whether he has a cath or not, cardiac cath or not. And then I had a conversation with Fred Wingate uh, this week, and his physicians have uh, asked if he would participate in a clinical trial for the treatment of his multiple myeloma, which is a good thing. Um, and I just want to kind of reflect over the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, we went from 7 degrees to 70 within about seven days. Probably ought to buy a lottery ticket. Um, and then I got to thinking, I was telling somebody on the phone, it was like we had a storm of biblical proportions, which got me to thinking. The lights went out. You know, that was a plague, darkness. Um, we didn't have hail, but we did have a lot of snow and ice. Um, the water didn't turn to blood, but we couldn't drink it for a while. And I thought, you know, if we get lice and, I mean, flies and locusts and boils, then we're really in trouble. But, you know, it just kind of said to me, you know, as much as we want to be in control, we're really not in control. And, and I think about this church and some of the positive things. We're going to have a youth minister. Uh, Bible Bowl was last Sunday night. And I want to just thank the, all the volunteers that made that a real success. It was a really neat thing to see that over in the Family Life Center. And I'd read that um, the percentage of COVID cases are going down. Johnson & Johnson got approval for their vaccine, so there will now be more of a supply. And I really feel like at some time this year, we'll see more people here with us. And it kind of got me to thinking about Bill's lesson last Sunday, where he talked about unconditional love. And the fact that as much as we want to be in control, we're not in control. And the first five chapters of Romans, he said, I can't bring anything to, I can't do anything to bring about my own salvation. It all comes from Jesus through his grace. And I had a friend of mine who was a minister that I went to college with who said about grace, it's the one thing that can overcome anything in our lives. And I think sometimes we forget that and we shouldn't. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we could come and worship you. And we, we thank you for this body. And we, 
we know that there are people that are hurting and, and there, there are those that are on the bulletin and there are those who are not. And we know that you know our needs and that we know that you will always watch us and look out for us and always do what's best for us. But we pray for the continued growth of this church. And as we move through this year, we pray for our youth minister search. Father, we pray for our elected leaders from a national down to a local level, that you'll be with them and that you'll give them wisdom and guidance. And Father, we, we, just, we just look to you and realize that if it weren't for your grace that we really wouldn't have, have much of a chance. And it's because of that that we, will, we have the hope of joining you in heaven someday. Pray that you forgive us of our sins, be with us this week. Always love us and uh, watch over us. In your son's name, amen. To help us prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper, this morning we'll sing Lamb of God. Your only son, oh sanctified, but you have sent him from your side. Years ago, when Bill first got here, he talked about how he had hoped at some point to have enough, I don't remember the exact word, but maybe trust was the word that he used, credibility, that's what it was, to preach the book of Romans. And uh, so that was a few years ago, and you know, I, I'm not sure if Bill uh, reached the point where he has that credibility, or maybe he just got tired of waiting and decided to plunge ahead, but uh, today he's going to be preaching from the book of Romans 4, chapter 4, 
And so uh, I'm probably the wrong person to be up here doing this today uh, because of my background, but uh, I'll go ahead and do it anyway. Uh, I grew up in the Baptist church, and so uh, I left when I was at the end of my teenage years and uh, became a member of Church of Christ. And so I've watched kind of, my family stayed in that church, my parents, and uh, I've watched from afar as people have struggled with the concept of works, and I've seen this kind of creep into the the Baptist church to the point where some people have said, well, you know, baptism itself is a work, and so therefore it's not essential to salvation, and, you know, those kind of things bother me greatly because I, I see the Bible telling us that baptism is a part of salvation. And so, uh, you know, in chapter 4, uh, we're talking about grace and, and works and things like that. And uh, it's a very difficult concept to understand for a lot of people. It was hard for me to understand for a number of years because there's a lot to unpack there. And so, um, you know, I kind of looked at it from a worldly right now standpoint to kind of help myself understand that. And so if you are an employee, you agree to take a job and you agree with that employer to accept the work for a certain wage. And so, you know, that agreement is struck and you go about your work and get your paycheck. That is work. That, in our legal system, we have laws. Right now we have a bill, they're trying to talk about the minimum wage, what the lowest amount of wage someone can get per hour. That's a big topic of discussion. So we see this, wages are a very integral part of the law. And so when we look at work, that that wage is a title that is owed to the employee. And so we know, because the Bible tells us, that we can't do a work to earn our salvation, that it is a gift. And so how do we we rectify that? Because we know that we're supposed to be doing things, we're commanded to be doing things. So how do we recognize or understand why those things that seem to be uh, conflicting, how do we reconcile that? And so, um, to kind of back that idea up, I want to read from uh, James chapter 2, 18 through 26. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have work. Works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But you are willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, I'm sorry, but are you willing to acknowledge, you foolish person, that faith without works is useless? Was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was Rahab the prostitute not justified by works also when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. 
For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And so, to wrap this up, when I was a teenager, about the time that I became a member of the Church of Christ, uh, my father asked me, we had a couple hundred acres of land, and he wanted to plant trees on that land. And so he tasked me and a gentleman he hired, a Hispanic fellow by the name of Silvano, to go out and take these genetically engineered, fast-growing saplings, and we would plant them. And so Silvano and I were out there in the woods for a long time. It was grueling, boring work. You know, you dig a hole, stick a tree in the ground, cover it up, walk another little distance and do it again. You kept doing that all day long. And so uh, the difference between Silvano and me was he was getting paid. <laughs> I wasn't. And I used to joke with my friends, you know, they'd ask me what I was doing. I said, well, I'm out there planting trees. And they'd ask me how much I was getting for it. And I said, well, this is the longest payday I'm ever going to have to wait for. It's going to take 30 years or more. And, and that's assuming that I'm in the will, so, <laughs> which may not be the case. Uh, but anyway, you know, the difference between Silvano and I was he was an employee and I was a family member. Now, my reasoning for doing this, I, I could have refused, I guess I could have found something else to do, but uh, I did it because I was part of that family. I had a relationship with that family. Uh, I cared for the land. I wanted to improve the land. It was our home. It was our land. So that meant something to me. But I was motivated by the love and and how I felt, the respect that I had for my parents, uh, all that wrapped into one. So the work that Silvano and I were doing was the same work. It's just that his status was different from my status. And I wasn't going to get a paycheck, and he was. And so that helped me to understand what the difference between grace and works was. It doesn't mean you don't do work when you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, your Savior, you actually do a lot of work. But you don't, you don't have the title of someone who is owed something. You're not owed that paycheck because we lack the standing to demand anything from him. We, would, we are not entitled to salvation no matter what we do. He does not owe us that. It's the relationship, the relationship that we have with him, being a member of his family, that gives us salvation. And so the thing that, the thing that kind of bothers me is I see people who say, well, you know, going back to this baptism thing, uh, it's a work. No, it's not a work. It's a, a part of that relationship. And it was that relationship that inspired Jesus to get on that cross and to give his life for us. And part of our relationship with him is the response of baptism and then everything else that goes with it. And so that is, in a nutshell, what we're doing right here, right now. We're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, our Savior, and this is the part of our relationship where we go to him and we thank him for what he's done for us. Would you bow your head with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we love you, and we know you love us. We know that because you came to earth and lived as one of us, even though you didn't have to, and 
you know, as this last week has shown, life can be hard. Your life was very hard. And you suffered like one of us, even though you didn't have to. We thank you for that perfect life. We thank you for your example. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for love. And as we take this um, bread that represents your body, we pray that we do it in a manner that pleases you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you bow with me again, please? Dear Heavenly Father, we know that blood washes away sin, that the wages of sin, the Bible tells us, is death, which means that we should be paying for our sins with our own death. But you sacrificed yourself for us so that your blood could cover our sins. And through this covering of our sins, we are then allowed to have a relationship with you and Heavenly Father, and we have hope in heaven. And we thank you for the blood that you shed for us. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll pray one more time. Heavenly Father, you've blessed us so much. And sometimes it takes a a catastrophe for us to understand because we tend to take things for granted. You know, uh, power, water, uh, being able to leave our homes. You know, we've seen a lot of crazy, wild swings in our lives in the last couple of years. And I think it's made a lot of people realize just how much we have and how much we tend to take for granted. But, uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you will help us to focus um, on the good things that you provide for us and to be continually thankful for those things. Our health, our homes, our jobs, our loved ones, our friends, our country, uh, our health. Dear God, we know people among us that are struggling and that have had losses, and we just pray that you strengthen us and help us more than anything to understand that the ultimate good is found with you in heaven and afterlife. But... Help us also to give back at this time so that the work that you want us to do is done. That the money that is given here accomplishes the things that you want us to accomplish. Not because it earns us anything, but because that's part of our relationship with you. 
And it, we thank you for this opportunity to give. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Programs. It's time to pass to those rooms at this time for the last program. And before Bill's lesson to us this morning, let's all stand and sing, Oh, to be like thee. Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, this is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I'll forfeit all of earth's treasures, Jesus thy worshiping together with us online, having fellowship with us, and what a blessing that is. What a blessing it is to be able to preach from the book of Romans. I'm not sure if it's credibility, Chris, if it's courage, if it's just a little bit of insanity, um, but uh, I think if you preach the book of Romans the way it's written, with the message that Paul has, then somewhere along the line, you're going to say something that's going to upset every single person. It's not going to be the same thing. And there's going to be some ebbs and flows. But as we said at the beginning of this series, some have said, if you get Romans, God gets you. I think as Grant has shared, as we have sung, as Chris shared around the table, we get a little bit of a glimpse of this grand book and this very challenging, very important message. What we're talking about today in Romans 6 is doing what uh, we just sang about, being like Jesus, living the way Jesus lived, valuing the things that Jesus valued. While making a strong case for salvation by grace through faith, the Apostle Paul now takes a step back and says what he doesn't mean. (laughs) And if you've been a bit uncomfortable with some of Bill's sermons over the past several weeks, as we've gone through Romans chapters 1 through 5, you're going to really like this one. Because this is the sermon that says you guys need to get up and do stuff for the Lord. (laughs) 
You need to get busy. You need to do good works. The book of Romans doesn't start with Romans chapter 6. And too many times we do. I loved your illustration, Chris, about that relationship between you and Silvano. And both of you out there working for your dad, both of you out there planting trees, him doing it to receive a wage, you doing it because he was your father and because you were a member of the family. And that really is a grand way to see the difference between what we've talked about in Romans 1 through 5 and what we're talking about in Romans 6. It's a grand way to see what we're talking about with the exception of Romans 6 in Romans 1 through 11 versus what we'll be talking about in Romans 12 through 16. A lot of us love Romans 6. (laughs) A lot of us love Romans 12 through 16 because it tells people how they should live and what they should do. We love that. We love that. What we find challenging is the message of the rest of the book of Romans, which is simply this. No matter how much you do, it will never be enough. It will never be enough. Silvano could have planted 100,000 trees and it wouldn't have made him a member of the family. And that's the difference. The things we do don't make us children of God. The things that we do, we do because we are children of God. And understanding that differentiation makes all the difference in the world about how you and I view those things that we're called upon to do for the Lord, that we read about in Romans 6 and that we read about especially in Romans 12 through 16. But again, that's not where the book of Romans starts. In Old Testament and New, it is always based on the indicative. It is always based on the undeserved blessing that God gives us. And then from there, there is a call to live a certain way. We saw that even in the Ten Commandments. Before you ever get to, you shall have no other gods before me and the rest of them, it starts out by saying, I am the God who delivered you out of bondage in Egypt. I'm not telling you to obey these 10 commandments and then I'll deliver you out of Egypt. I did that out of my grace. Now here's how you are to live. We see it in a much better way from the perspective of Jesus on the cross. That he doesn't tell us you live a certain way and I'll send my son to die for you. As we saw in that sermon on God's unconditional love from Romans 5, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were what? Sinners, Christ died for us. That is an act of grace. As Chris shared, as Grant shared, 
that grace that covers everything, and it's the only thing that can cover that. We can't earn forgiveness, but we can be grateful for it. And that's what Romans 6 is about. We can recognize that the grace of God and the salvation that comes by grace through that response of faith that Chris is exactly right is not a work and does include Christian baptism. That that puts us on in a new life, on a different path, ready to do all of those things that will honor and glorify God, none of which will earn us salvation but all of which we are called upon to do and to live by today because we've received that salvation. While making a strong case for salvation by grace through faith, the Apostle Paul now takes a step back and says what he doesn't mean. (laughs) And that's why we love Romans 6 so much, because at this point we're really uncomfortable. It sounds, Paul, like you're saying... Well, it doesn't matter what you do or how you live. Jesus died on the cross. His blood saves us. Nothing else can. So whoop-de-doo. I think that's a technical theological term. It's in one of those translations of Romans 6, the first couple of verses. Why does he do what he's about to do in Romans 6? It's because that is exactly what it sounds like. If you are preaching salvation by grace through faith... That's what it sounds like. It sounds like I can live any way I want to live and it won't matter because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's not true, but that's what it sounds like if we're actually preaching it and teaching it and hearing it right. But if we're hearing it filtered through years or decades of trying to earn that salvation as a wage then we don't get that message. And we hold our breath until we come to Romans 6 where he finally tells us how we're supposed to live. (laughs) So far, the message has been God credits us with his righteousness as Chris shared about Abraham and Romans chapter 4 with his righteousness that we do not deserve and cannot earn that all have sinned and are justified freely by the grace and mercy of God through the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That was the message in Romans chapter 3. But the Apostle Paul knows that this message can be turned around to mean something that it does not teach. And that's where Romans chapter 6 comes in with a brief preview of what the message of chapters 12 through 16 will be. I'll say it again later, but let me say it again now. Romans 6 does not negate and cancel Romans 1 through 5. We love Romans 6 because it tells us how we're supposed to live. It gives us basis for the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots. We're a bit uncomfortable with Romans chapters 1 through 5 because Romans chapters 1 through 5 says, no matter how you do on the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots, it is not enough to save your soul and to forgive your sins. And so what we're about to look at today in Romans 6 does not cancel what we have read for five chapters. The apostle knows that this message can be turned around and abused, and that's why he offers this parenthesis in the midst of this section. 
And so a couple of things about this great chapter. First of all, we do not go on sinning that this grace might increase. That's an abuse of the message of Romans 1 through 5. But that's what it sounds like. And that's why Paul asks this ridiculous rhetorical question. Because it's almost like it makes sense. That's how strongly he has taught this message in Romans 1 through 5 of salvation by the grace of God through the response of faith that doesn't deserve us, that doesn't earn us anything, but that simply connects us with the blood that does. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Absolutely not. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Now we're going to come back to these four verses because it's one of our favorites. Because <laughs> it talks about how central baptism is in the response of faith. And it connects baptism to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And nothing could be more significant. But that's not why he's writing Romans 6. That is accurate. It's just not his point. Verse 5, for we have been united with him in a death like his, talking about dying to sin in Christian baptism. We have been united with him in a death like his. We will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. The resurrection out of the watery grave of baptism to lead us into a new life like verse 4 is a look ahead to the time when our bodies are raised to be with him forever. Verse 6, for we know that our old self was credited with, was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Again, we died to sin in baptism. We are buried with Christ through baptism into death. We are raised to live a new life. And now, he says, because we have died to sin, we're no longer slaves to sin. Death sets you free from that. <clears throat> Verse 8, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, as the writer of Hebrews would say. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, now just like that happened with Jesus, that happens in a similar way with us after our baptism. Verse 11, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought, bought, brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. 
Verse 14 is exactly the opposite of verse 1. Verse 1 says, because we're under grace, we can be involved in sin. And verse 14 says that is absolutely the opposite of the truth. Sin is no longer our master because we're under grace. And that's his point. Now, he's going to get pretty specific about sins in chapters 12 through 16. Here, it's just a general statement or two. But it causes us to ask ourselves, is what we're doing allowing sin to reign in our mortal body? Whatever it is, if that is true, it's wrong. It's sinful. And it shouldn't be a part of our lives. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, Paul speaks similarly about dying to sin and being buried with Christ. And being raised to live a different life, which he discusses in the rest of the book of Colossians. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul had kind of alluded to this moment in a very brief little statement that he expands on, uh, expounds upon in chapter 6. When he says in Romans 3 verses 7 and 8, someone might argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. Again, if God's grace is so great, let us do evil so that God can be even more glorified. Why would he say such a ridiculous statement? Because that's what grace sounds like. If we're really teaching it, if we're really preaching it, that's what it sounds like. It makes us very uncomfortable. Because what it sounds like is you can live any way you want to live. And Jesus' blood will save you. And that's what he's saying is not true in chapter 6. Sounds like it, but that's not true. Why is that not true? We died to sin. We were buried with Christ through baptism. And so we are raised out of the baptismal waters to live a new life. And that's his point. That wonderful Twyla Paris song that we sang, Lamb of God, I was so lost, I should have died. But you have brought me to your side to be led by your staff and rod to be called the Lamb of God. Baptism is not the end, it's the beginning. It's the starting of the new life. It's the starting of being led by God's word, by his staff, by his rod, like a lamb and and its shepherd. We are raised out of the baptismal waters to live a new life. Interestingly enough, the immediate context of this passage is not to teach one how to become a Christian. (laughs) Though we can learn that here. This passage was written to Christians who had already made that response of faith and needed to hear that their lives were now different because of that response. He's not trying to get people to do this. He's talking to people who have already done it and are asking the question, what now? They needed to be reminded that they had died to sin, that they had been buried with Christ through baptism into death, that they were raised up out of their baptism to live a new life. 
This point would be meaningless if there were unbaptized Christians in Rome. Let me say that again. This point that Paul is making in Romans 6 would be meaningless if there were unbaptized Christians in Rome. He's basing his whole point on how you should live based on being baptized into Christ. Dying to sin, being buried with Christ through baptism into death and being raised to live a new life. That's why you don't sin. That's why you live faithfully. This point would be meaningless if there were unbaptized Christians in Rome. Unbaptized Christians could say, well, that doesn't apply to me because I've never been baptized. So I can read the rest of the book of Romans with no pressure (laughs) because I'm off the hook. But Paul knew that all those who were Christians at Rome had responded in faith to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And just as it is today, baptism was a part of their response of faith. And on your outline, there are other scriptures that talk a lot about that. And though that's an important point, that's not the point of Romans 6. If we use this passage solely to argue the necessity of baptism by immersion for the forgiveness of sins, we have missed the primary point that Paul sought to make. If all you've ever gotten out of Romans 6 is the first four verses, you've missed it. You've missed it. For Paul, baptism is a holy moment where transformation occurs in the life of the believer and leads to a transformed life. John Mark Hicks and Greg Taylor have this as a quote in their wonderful little book, Down in the River to Pray on Baptism. They write, it is an event that unites us with the Christ event. He points back to baptism in his letters when it seems his readers have elevated Jewish rituals over the grace of God. Baptism is a sign of a new ethical lifestyle grounded in the grace of God and lived out in the body of Christ, the community of faith. So to repeat, if we only use this passage to argue the necessity of baptism by immersion, For the forgiveness of sins, we've missed the primary points Paul sought to make. He was speaking to individuals who, like most of us, and likely a lot of us who are watching online as well, he was writing to those people who had already done that. They had already accepted that teaching. They had already obeyed that command. And so the apostle points us back to our baptism and calls on us to ask ourselves, did that mean anything? And did it mean more than just my salvation? You say, Bill, just my salvation? You don't think that's a big deal? It's a huge deal. It's just not the only deal. And as Paul writes Romans 6, that's not his point. His point is that there is far more to baptism than just the washing away of our sins. There's a whole life lived after that to honor God, to glorify God, to serve others, to do all the good things, to not do any of the bad things. Why? Because I've been buried with Christ through baptism into death and raised to live a new life. I don't do those good things and I don't not do those bad things so that I can have a new life. 
I've got a new life. Now this is what that looks like. Being saved by grace through the response of faith does not give us permission to go on sinning so that this amazing grace will abound and increase. The apostle points us back to our baptism and calls us to ask, has it changed the way I live my life? Does the fact that I have died to sin, been buried with Christ by baptism into death and been raised to live a new life, has that changed the way I treat others? Has that changed the way I spend my time? Has that impacted the moral choices that I make? Being saved by grace through the response of faith does not give us permission to go on sinning so that this amazing grace will abound and increase. In fact, it's just the opposite. The reason we do not go on sinning is because we have been saved by grace, because we have died to sin, because we have been raised to live a new life that honors the sacrifice of Christ and brings glory to God. Secondly, we do not continue as slaves to sin. Romans 6, verses 15 through the end of the chapter. What then shall we say? Because we are not under, because we're not under the law, but under grace. By no means. Don't you know that when you offer someone, uh, you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now, let me say right here, this passage says absolutely nothing about the horror and sin of slavery as we have seen in the history of our country. It's not talking about that at all. It doesn't justify it. It's talking about ourselves and the slavery that we are under. And he's going to say more about that. We are slaves to the one we obey, whether slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Why is that? Because you died to sin. You were buried with Christ through baptism into death. You were raised to live a new life. That's what he's talking about. Verse 19, I am using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. That's the example that was a part of their everyday life in the first century Roman world. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? None. (laughs) The life of sin gives you no benefits. Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. You don't have holiness and then you receive the benefit. It's the benefit of salvation and forgiveness that leads you to become more and more holy in your life. Verse 23 that Chris referred to earlier, for the wages of sin is death. If you get what you deserve, it's death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the grace that Grant talked about, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We do not continue as slaves 
to sin. We have been set free from our slavery to sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You see, the question is not, am I a slave? Rather, it is, to what am I enslaved? Is it to righteousness or is it to sin? Is it to life or is it to death? Even Bob Dylan recognized this with his Grammy-winning song from 1980, You're Gonna Serve Somebody. Or I think, as he put it, you're gonna serve somebody. Something like that. One of the lines says, it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're gonna serve somebody. Now, I want you to know, I'm not putting my stamp of approval on everything Bob Dylan stands for. (laughs) But he's right on this one. You are gonna serve somebody. And that's exactly what Romans 6 says. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're gonna serve somebody. The question is, who will you serve? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 that we're not enslaved to our bodies and our rights. Rather, we make our bodies our slave. Who is the master and who is the slave when it comes to your physical desires, when it comes to your time, when it comes to your life? Who's in charge? Who's the master and who's the slave? In the United States, we're very quick to say, but it's my right. I should demand my rights. I should receive my rights. And maybe from a political perspective in our nation, that has merit. But from a spiritual perspective in my relationship with God, it means zero, zero. I have no rights, no rights. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 is as a Christian, as an apostle, as a preacher, I have the same rights as all the others, including the right to give up all my rights. (laughs) And that's what Jesus did. And that's what he calls us to do. And that goes against the grain of our national history and our pride as not just Americans, but as Texans. (laughs) We're a very independent lot. It's just hard to meld that in a spiritual perspective with the call of Jesus that says, if you're gonna be my disciple, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to take up your cross every single day and you've got to follow me. You've got to give up all your rights and become a slave. Not to yourself, not to sin, but to Christ and to righteousness. As we pointed, as Paul pointed out in chapter four with the example of Abraham and David and in chapter five, contrasting Jesus and Adam, if we get what we deserve, we will get death. And that's where this great verse, Romans six, verse 23 comes through. For the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you sacrifice for the sake of others? Your body is to be a living sacrifice, we'll read in Romans 12 verse one, which starts that here's how you to live section. Do you do that? Do you do that humbly, willingly, even cheerfully? (laughs) Or on those rare occasions when you sacrifice your preference and will for someone else's, Do you hold a grudge and nurse your resentment seeking a time and opportunity for you to be paid back for your sacrifice? 
Do you draw a line in the sand and demand your right? If that's your attitude, you are more American than Christian. It's not bad to be an American. It's wonderful. It's the greatest nation on the earth. It's just not the church. And the call of the Christian is to go against that default desire that says, demand my rights. To say, I willingly, cheerfully, gratefully, humbly give up my rights and become a slave. That's what it means to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. That's why in the Roman world of the first few centuries, they couldn't understand this thing called the church because they didn't live like anybody else. They welcomed sacrifice. They weren't masochistic, but they said, we will overcome evil with good, just as Jesus did. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So our lives are given over to Christ rather than self, to righteousness rather than sin. And the benefit for us is life rather than death. So what are the choices here? Well, one choice is a path that brings destruction and unhappiness and ends in death. That's not how Satan dangles it in front of us, but that's one option. By choosing righteousness living, however, our lives are blessed. We are a blessing to others and we receive holiness and life for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. For righteousness living, for Paul, righteousness living does not contradict salvation by grace through faith. For Paul, salvation by grace through faith does not give us permission to be slaves to sin. In fact, it's just the opposite. We are slaves to righteousness because we are under grace. This has been his message throughout Romans 6. Nor does the call to righteousness living indicate a righteousness that is our own based on our own good works rather than the righteousness of God that is by grace through the response of faith. Again, that is the message of Romans 1 through 5. And Romans 6 does not contradict or negate the first five chapters. In fact, those first five chapters had to be said first. And then we were ready to hear chapter 6. As we said last week, our obedient lives and our good deeds are the effect of our salvation. They're not the cause. They're not what bring it about. We are slaves to righteousness because we are under grace. The call to righteousness living is only possible because of the righteousness of God that is given by the grace of God through the blood of Christ. The righteousness living does not end when we're baptized. That is where it begins where we are raised to live a new life. We have the opportunity to accomplish something huge in the lives of people, in the lives of our community and the lives of our world, but it's going to take us putting ourselves and our selfish desires behind the concerns for those around us, not in front. May we be slaves to obedience and righteousness rather than slaves to sin. May we offer the parts of our body to righteousness and holiness instead of to selfishness and sin and death. 
Yes, for Paul, righteousness living does not contradict salvation by grace through faith. For Paul, salvation by grace through faith does not give us permission to be slaves to sin. In fact, it's just the opposite. We are slaves to righteousness because we are under grace. As we're seeing, as we'll sing in just a moment, we are dead to the world, to voices that call me, living anew, obedient but free, dead to the joys that once did enthrall me, yet it is not I, but Christ liveth in me. May we catch a glimpse of the Son of God on the cross. May we hear his call to deny ourselves, take up our own crosses, and follow him. May we answer that call by dying to sin, being buried with Christ through baptism into death, and being raised to live a new life, being raised to righteousness living. This morning, if we can help you do that, come as we stand sing our hymn together. Buried with Christ, my blessed Redeemer, sent to the old life of folly and sin. Sing me all the We get to come here and sing songs and praises to you and your wonderful son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you help those, Lord, that cannot be here today for whatever reason that may be, if they're sick or ailing in any kind of way, spiritually or physically, we ask that you just put your hand upon them and bring them back to us at the next appointed time. 
Lord, as we leave here, we ask that you take us safely home and bring us safely back. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.